remarks of my comments last week on sanctification, and I want to place these in a, shall I say, formal pattern so that they are well articulated. The issue of sanctification arises in three places in this 10th chapter, verses 10 and 14, and by my reading of verse 29. Sanctification of verse 29 is the sanctification of Christ Jesus himself. Now, sanctification as a process moves from sinfulness to sinlessness to endless sinlessness. Sanctification is a progress in holiness. And Christ undergoes this process. The Son of God progresses in holiness. He undergoes the contradiction of sinners, as this epistle says in chapter 12, verse 3. He is made to be sin, as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. The Son of God is made unholy on the cross. He then progresses from the unholy to the holy, from sinful to sinless in his resurrection. And he arrives at endless holiness, eternal sinlessness, everlasting sanctification in his glorification. Now, you will observe, as I remarked last week, that this is not an ontological progression. The Son of God is ontologically and essentially sinless, endlessly holy and incapable of sin or unholiness. Rather, this paradigm which I am advancing is redemptive historical. It is a redemptive historical progress and incarnation in history of the progressive pattern required in a sinful being in his journey from unholiness to increasing holiness to definitive holiness. And it is this pattern which is lived out in the history of the Son of God by way of incarnation. He accomplishes it by way of death, unholiness, resurrection, holiness, and glorification, definitive holiness. Christ, in other words, incarnates holiness, including the historic progression of holiness which is necessary to a sinner. Those in Christ Jesus become the beneficiaries of his incarnational sanctification, both now and not yet. 
Now they are being sanctified in Christ Jesus, as Hebrews 10, 14 indicates, in an ongoing process. Not yet they have been fully sanctified in Christ Jesus, as Hebrews 10, 10 indicates, a completed process. And in Christ, the definitive not yet sanctification is working itself out in the now sanctification of those who have died unto sin in Christ Jesus and have been raised unto newness and holiness of life in Christ Jesus. This is not a punctiliar act. It is a work in progress as the life of those in Christ, in the Holy Lord Jesus, progresses. And therefore, there is no threat in this paradigm to confusing justification and sanctification. This is not a once and for all punctiliar event, even as it is not so in the history of the incarnate Son of God. It is a work in progress which moves from its contradiction to its sinless perfection to its definitive sanctificatory glorification. The definitive sanctification of believers is in Christ Jesus, who himself, as the perfectly holy Son of God, is definitively sanctified. So we will have no confusion about perfect sanctification in this life because sanctification is a process and is only completed in everlasting glory. Christ submits to that pattern, even in his incarnate state in history. He undergoes it on our behalf so that what is recapitulated in him is found in us in measure. Well, with that background, then, let us turn our attention to the next section of this 10th chapter, which is verses 19 through 35. And notice that we are at a point of transition And contrastive transition, emphatic transition, in which there is a comparison between the sacrifice of Christ and our entrance into his arena. Now, his arena, according to this epistle, is the heavenly tabernacle. And this pattern that we observe here in chapter 10, is a repetition of the pattern we observed in chapter 9. In verses 1 to 10 of Hebrews 9, we moved from a consideration of the sacrifice of Christ, particularly in relationship to Old Testament sacrificial ceremonial ritual, to his entrance into the heavenly tabernacle. Notice verse 11 of chapter 9, Christ appeared 
as a high priest and entered the greater and more perfect tabernacle. Now, verse 19 of chapter 10. We have confidence to enter the holy place. And this is the holy place of the heavenly tabernacle by the blood of Jesus. A duplication of the same pattern moving from <clears throat> sacrifice in 9, 1 to 10 to entrance into the heavenly arena, verses 11 to 28 in chapter 9. And here, verses 1 to 18, the sacrificial ritual, and verses 19 to 35, the entrance of Christ into the heavenly tabernacle. Please notice that Christ pioneers the way. He pioneers the way into the heavenly tabernacle in order to undergird and bolster our confidence. Now, this word confidence, which we use routinely, is a compound Latin derivative. We break it down, it comes from confide. Anytime you see an English word with this prefix C-O-N, it is derived from the Latin preposition C-U-M, cum. Does anyone know what cum means in Latin? It means with. And what does the word fide mean, Robert? Okay, uh, I'll accept that. What does the word fide mean? It comes from fides. It means faith. This is the Latin word for faith. So, <clears throat> con fide means with faith or with trust. And when you put uh, trust in that stronger position, that is, the uh, possession with faith of an object, then you are talking about confidence or trusting or relying upon it. So this word confidence, which we find in verse 19, is a word which is intended to uh, strengthen or encourage the reliance that we have upon the work of Christ in his entrance into the heavenly tabernacle. Notice also in verse 22 that we are to be undergirded with a full assurance. A full assurance of that faith or that confidence. So here are two very strong words of encouragement deriving from the entrance of Christ into the heavenly arena. Where is our assurance focused? Upon the 10 steps of repentance or the 35 steps of regeneration or the 55,000 steps of sanctification or sitting around taking our spiritual pulse wondering whether or not we have done enough? We've gone down the sawdust trail enough times. We've made enough decisions for Jesus. Not according to this letter. 
The object of our confidence is Christ in his heavenly tabernacle. The object of our assurance is Christ in his high and lifted up place of eternal rest. The answer to the troubled conscience of assurance or the doubting faith of the unbeliever is not in the unbeliever himself. It's not in the doubting conscience. It's not in the weak assurance. It is in Christ. And so the answer to troubled assurance and doubting faith is to get your eyes off yourself. You're too stuck on yourself. That's your problem. And if you do sit around with your manuals trying to figure out how many steps to repentance you have to repeat this week or how many marks of regeneration you have to find... You're simply spinning your wheels and taking your eyes off of what you need to be focused on. This epistle will close by saying, looking steadfastly unto Jesus. Every doubt you have about your salvation or about your spiritual walk is answered when you look to Jesus. Every qualm of assurance you have is driven away by the fact that when you look to Jesus, there you see the one who has surely given himself for you and has said, I will never let you go. Now, can you walk away from such a contemplation without being assured? Well, then, if doubts assail you, don't look inside. Look up to the right hand of the glory on high. Look to the one who gave his life for you. Don't look at your life. It's a counsel of despair. Your life can never be the ground of your assurance. Never. It's the life of Christ. So, with Edwards and the better Puritans, look out of yourself and look to this glorified intercessor and redeemer. Now, the bracket around this unit, and we have a, shall we say, epistolary or narrative or literary unit here in this epistle is framed by that word confidence in verse 19 and verse 35. As we pointed out last week, there is no, shall we say, macro structure to this chapter, but there are several interesting subdivisions which frame or bracket portions of this of this chapter. And the word confidence is the key here between verses 19 and 35. Well, at the outset, then, of this section on confidence or reliance or full trust and assurance, what is the ground of motivation for such confidence? It is entrance of Christ into the holy place. Because he goes before and opens the way for us to follow. He has 
taken down the barriers. He has removed all the obstacles. He has cleared the path and he has opened up heaven's gate so that we may enter in in him. Now that will draw your confidence unto the heavenly throne of God. And notice the basis of this confidence That is, the ground of this confidence in verse 19 is the blood of Jesus. In standing under the blood, you are standing under the ground of your confidence and assurance because Christ's blood was shed that you might look heavenward, that you might claim him as your redeemer. Therefore, file your claim. And repeat it and renew it and encourage your heart by the fact that you stand upon this finished blood atonement made once and for all on your behalf and on behalf of an innumerable company of the elect of all angels, ages. All right, now by what means do we have confidence? <clears throat> Verse 20. By the way, inaugurated for us by him. Now, this word inaugurated suggests a particular kind of language. What kind of language is that word, inaugurated? This epistle is written... To the Hebrews. Who are the Hebrews? What have we been suggesting about the meaning of the title of this letter? To the sojourners, to the pilgrims of the end of the age, to the semi-eschatological pilgrim people of God. All right, now, what kind of language is this word inaugurated? It is pilgrim language. It is the language of sojourners. So Christ himself has inaugurated that way. He has pilgrimed the way. He has traveled the way. He is a sojourner on the way. In fact, we have called him the eschatological pilgrim from time to time because that's what this epistle calls him. He is the pioneer and perfecter, the forerunner. He, too, you see, has accommodated himself to the pilgrim sojourn of the pilgrims in the history of redemption. It must be so, for unless it is accomplished in history, it cannot be performed. In the abstract, it is no good. As an ideology, it is worthless. But it is incarnated in history, and he becomes a pilgrim, as his people are pilgrims. Then the history of redemption comes to its fullness and completion. Well, in this verse, verse 20, the writer says that his flesh is the veil. His flesh is the veil. What do we usually mean by this veil, Terry? It's a it's a separating device. And what kind of a device was it? Separating the most holy or the holy of holies from the holy place. Is that the corrugated aluminum rooftop? What was this separation? You're right. It's a separation. But what kind of device was it? Well, it, was, it was a 
It was a curtain. All right. So here, when we think of the veil, we read this verse, we think of the curtain, which divides the uh, tabernacle and the temple into two sections. Interestingly, we are not dealing with the temple in the epistle to the Hebrews. He's dealing only with the tabernacle. Why is he dealing only with the tabernacle in his theology of God's uh, holy place or God's place of worship? Because the tabernacle is that which goes with pilgrims. All right, so it has nothing to do with whether the temple's been destroyed in 70 A.D. or not. It's outside of his theological purpose. That's the reason he does not mention it. He's dealing with that which is accommodated to a pilgrim sojourning people of God. All right, so now back to the point here. Why is he calling the veil the flesh of Jesus? Why is he calling this barrier the flesh of Christ? You still have the floor, Terry, if you wish to. Well, we don't get to the end of the journey except through Christ. And, and, and he's... But the word, the word flesh here would not suggest something heavenly, would it? No. No. What's it suggest? His uh, incarnation is it, man. His incarnation, very good. And what event in his incarnation? His crucifixion. All right, so he's likening the flesh of Christ to this veil. All right, now we can think about that event and what would come into our mind as we think about it, Ben. But that veil was torn in two from top to bottom. When... When Jesus gave up the ghost that the veil in the temple was torn in two. Well, was his flesh torn in two? Robert? His flesh was broken. It is torn by the nails, but it's not torn in two. So uh, we we lose the literal equivalence of the symbolism. The curtain was there uh, making that separation, and then the high priest went back there once a year, and he is the high priest, and he is the curtain, so two have come together, right? (laughs) That's interesting. Um, That's an interesting take. Uh, I commend you, Robert. Uh, combining the fact that he is both veil and priest. Uh, I, 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 I don't want to minimize uh, uh, what may be accurate there. <clears throat> but here, let's simply suggest that he's likening the veil to that barrier which must be pierced. And the only way to pierce that barrier is for Christ to offer his flesh. Notice, when he says that is, he is using what we might call a metaphorical or an associative representation. He doesn't mean that Christ's flesh is literally the veil, but he's likening this separation which divides God from man to the veil, and to the flesh of Christ, which was offered to break that barrier down. 
So yes, as priest he does it. And he does it in the body of his flesh. Which would support the suggestion that I've made in terms of this definitive sanctification paradigm that Jesus himself is regarded on the cross as a sinner. Not ontologically, but vicariously and redemptive historically. And he must be so. He must be so for your sin to be reversed. Because if he doesn't take it, if he doesn't become it as a substitute on your behalf, then there is no remedy for yours. Because your historical sinfulness has not been atoned for. And this passage here lends support to that suggestion, even as the Apostle Paul and this uh, this writer in this epistle make the same allusion. All right, now, the living way in this verse is the way which he pioneers. It's the way which he opens as the pilgrim. And notice that it is the way of the one who is life itself. Is there then a reflection here in this verse on the previous allusion in this epistle to the Son of God having the power of an endless life? Is this living way which penetrates the veil? Is this living way the way of one who is pioneering an endless life because he possesses it ontologically and he manifests it redemptive historically? All right, we are now on the edge of some profound reflections in the mind of this writer which are driving us deeper into the mystery of the relationship between ontology and incarnation. Verse 21, we have a great priest over the house of God. What is the house of God? The church. It is the church. We have a great priest over the church. We have a over the church when we have one final priest over the church. We should not, for to do so is implicit blasphemy. This is the last and great priest. He is the eschatological high priest. There is no priest after him. Priesthood is at an end. Notice, the New Testament does not call its officers priests. It calls them ministers, servants, presbyters, bishops. It does not call them priests. The Reformation occurred for a reason. Thank you, Lord. All right. Now, in verse 22, we've already alluded to the phrase full assurance. But notice in the New American Standard, this word sincere, which in your margin is also translated true. Drawing near with a sincere heart of faith. A sincere heart of faith. This is an antithetical phrase. Antithetical to what? 
It is antithetical to the phrase that occurs in chapter 3. An evil heart of unbelief. Chapter 3, verse 12. We are invited to draw near, not with the heart of those in that former sojourn generation whose carcasses dropped in the wilderness. We are invited to draw near with the opposite, the very antithesis of that evil heart of unbelief, a true and sincere heart full of faith. And we are assured of being sprinkled clean and washed and cleansed must be baptism. Anytime you see water in the New Testament, it must be baptism. So baptism sprinkles or cleans the conscience. An evil conscience is cleaned by baptism. All we have to do is put the water on and the conscience is cleaned. The evil out of the conscience is washed away. True? False. For you certainly know people who have had the water applied, whether as infants or adults, and still have an evil conscience. So the washing and the sprinkling here is not baptismal imagery. What is it? It comes out of Ezekiel 36. So let's turn back to the prophet for a moment. Ezekiel 36. And when somebody finds it, verse 25 and 26, and when you find it, just go ahead and read it out loud. Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. What is the imagery of Ezekiel suggesting? Not baptism in his case either. Incidentally, the Hebrew word for cleansing there means to cleanse by washing. So the association with the imagery that we're noting in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, is identical. Maureen, you read the passage. What's going on in verse 26? What kind of imagery is this or what kind of activity is this? What's Ezekiel talking about when he prophesies that God's going to give a heart of flesh and take away a heart of stone? An internal... Spiritual. An internal... Regeneration. I wonder who's struggling. (laughs) Okay. An internal regeneration. What do we mean by regeneration, Maureen? Um, New life. Say that in pop evangelical terms. It's actually biblical terms, but... Um, Born again. Being born again. All right. Incidentally, the very same use of this imagery occurs in that passage, that famous passage in which Jesus talks to Nicodemus about being a born again. He talks to him about being born of water and the spirit. And it is the same imagery that is derived from Ezekiel 36. He's not talking about baptismal imagery at all. He's talking about regeneration. He's talking about being born actually out of heaven, which is the reference to born from above in that John 3 passage. So here, Ezekiel is simply saying that God is going to affect it. 
He is going to cleanse and wash and sprinkle with a new nature, not a stony, stubborn heart, but a heart softened, malleable, fleshly, responsive, beating, throbbing unto God and unto his will and delight. And it's going to have to have, it's going to take God to do it because the only one that can turn rock to flesh is God himself. It's going to take an omnipotent supernatural act. It's going to take a work of heaven. It's going to take an eschatological birth. That is a birth from heaven. And what's the first sign of that birth from heaven? What's the first sign of the birth of a baby? It cries and takes a breath. Exactly. And what's the first sign of the birth from heaven? Cry out, Lord, have mercy upon me. It's your first act of faith. Because the breathing of a new child is equivalent to the breathing of a newborn sinner by faith. And he cries out of his desperation. Lord, save me. Well, to say it sincerely, you see, notice this true heart, the sincere heart. To say it sincerely is to mean it has already been regenerated. It's already been cleansed, already been sprinkled. It's already been renewed. It's genuinely there. And it will continue to demonstrate itself through the ups and downs of the Christian pilgrimage until death. That is the assurance. That is the full assurance of this living and open way into the endless life, not only of the Son of God, but of the arena into which he has entered. Now, we notice in 22, 23, and 24, a little rule of threes paradigm. Notice the let us, the three let us's. Let us hold fast, let it, rather, let us draw near, let us hold fast, and let us consider. These are all three exhortations. We pointed out before that this author likes to use the rule of threes. He, he does it with words, he does it with phrases, he does it with paradigms. Here he's doing it with exhortations. But I want to focus on this word hold fast in verse 23. I want to go back to chapter 3 and take a look at verse 6. Chapter 3, verse 6 of Hebrews. Notice the word hold fast. If we hold fast our confidence, there's that word confidence again. Now, if you glance down to verse 14 of the same third chapter... Notice what you find again, the word hold fast. It's actually one word in the Greek. But this word hold fast in chapter 3 is a framing device. It's a bracket. And what's it framing? What's in between the two occurrences of the word hold fast in chapter 3? What is it, Art? Is um, Psalm Psalm ninety five describing what? Describing what? Christina, what's it describing? A hard heart, a 
hard heart. It is describing a hard heart, an evil heart of unbelief, yes. In what context, were you? The Exodus. Mm, the Exodus. Uh, better than the Exodus? The wilderness. Correct. And what happens to them? They all die. They die in the wilderness, outside of God's rest. They are barred from God's rest. All right, so we have this uh, external, internal paradigm, once again, that we've noted in this epistle, as we have that external, internal paradigm in the Exodus generation. That is, those who came out of Egypt externally in the body of the people of God were not internally of the elect of the Lord. How do we know that? Because they had an evil heart of unbelief and they died in the wilderness, even though they were beneficiaries of the great miraculous deliverance, even though they were led through the Red Sea or the Reed Sea, as the case may be, even though they were fed by manna out of heaven and water out of the rock, even they saw the glory of God at the Mount Sinai. They dropped dead because of unbelief. The external privilege does not guarantee the internal transformation or regeneration. Just because you're an outward member of the assembly doesn't mean you're an inward member of the elect. All right, so that's that's uh, being de- described here in chapter 3. And notice that this word hold fast is bracketing that paradigm. So he's placing something in antithesis to that doubting wilderness paradigm. That wilderness apostasy paradigm. All right, now keep that in the back of your mind. This wilderness generation of unbelievers who are barred from God's rest, nonetheless, they are sojourners. They are pilgrims of that former age. They are the Hebrews of the earlier age. And this epistle is written to the Hebrews of the latter age, to the sojourners of the new age. What we have then in chapter 10, by the use of this word hold fast, is a possible repetition of the wilderness sojourn pattern. As we noted, in the former generation, in the past, they were on the path, they were on the pilgrimage to the promised land. In the process of that pilgrim sojourn, they had access to the tabernacle through the priests by the blood of the covenant. And yet, they had an evil heart of unbelief and were excluded from possessing the lasting or eternal benefits of this pilgrim journey. They died in the wilderness outside God's everlasting rest. Now, the present or latter pilgrim sojourn. We are on the way, on the path, on a pilgrimage to the heavenly arena, pioneered by Christ, access to that heavenly tabernacle given to us by a great high priest who offers his very own blood, namely the blood of Jesus. (laughs) The sincere heart of faith includes us in possession of the promised benefits as lasting and as eternal as the approaching day itself, verse 25. What day is that? It is the day which marks journey's end. It is the day of everlasting life. It is the day in which we possess the life and the arena 
and the realm of heaven which Jesus now possesses. We hold fast to that hope, that confidence, that assurance, that promise, that divine and supernatural faithfulness because he holds fast to us. Therefore, verses 19 to 25 of this 10th chapter are describing this better sojourn, this more excellent pilgrimage and the access we have in the era of the new covenant. Well, what happens in verse 26? If we go on sinfully willing, uh, sin, sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, Verse 25, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses uh, dies in the testimony of two or three. How much severe punishment we trample underfoot the blood of the Son of God and insult the blood of the covenant. And the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. You see, the progress of the paradigm here is the same as the progress of the paradigm throughout this epistle. It is the progress of the paradigm of antithesis, the contrast between the former wilderness generation and the generation that entered into the land and the promise which is now belonging to the generation of pilgrims at the end of the age and those within that community who are apostates like the wilderness generation of old. And where do the apostates of this new age appear? They appear in chapter 6, verses 4 to 8. And they appear in the very same language of the wilderness paradigm as we find here in chapter 10 and as we find in chapter 6 itself. The paradigm of being enlightened. They saw the pillar of fire. The paradigm of tasting the heavenly gifts. They tasted the manna out of heaven. The paradigm of being partaker of the Holy Spirit. God gave them his good spirit, as Nehemiah says. So does Isaiah. Gave them his good spirit in the sense that he showed his glory. And he delivered his word by his spirit. And they were partakers of it in the sense that they heard it. They tasted the good word of God. And the powers of the age to come. They enjoyed the miraculous and supernatural benefit of God's mighty display. But they fell away. They fell away. And their bodies dropped in the wilderness. The imagery is the imagery of redemptive history. It is not the imagery of meticulous analysis of spiritual psychology. That is not what's going on in Hebrews 6, 4 to 8. It is a redemptive historical paradigm. It is not an ordo salutis paradigm. And we come back to it once again here in chapter 10. For we have a contrast between verses 19 and 25 where we have entered in and those who died under the vengeance and wrath of God in verses 26 to 31. A contrast between this better pilgrim age and sojourn and that former pilgrim age and sojourn. And an analogy between the two in terms of antithetical contrast. 
Notice the language in this section. Sinning willfully. Verse 26, after receiving the knowledge of the truth. Turning back to chapter 6, verse 6. They have fallen away and cannot be renewed again to repentance. The language is virtually an exact parallel. Notice in verse 29, this group tramples underfoot the Son of God. Again, chapter 6, verse 6, they crucify to themselves the Son of God. Very significant that the Son of God title is used in both of these places. Now, it's not the only place in the epistle where it is used, but the fact that it occurs here in this same context of that reprobate generation is a reflection on the apostate generation, which is now being described in this epistle. And finally, the vengeance and judgment which God takes with his terrible hands upon those who trample underfoot. Verses 30 and 31 of chapter 10 I will repay. It is a terrifying thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Compared with verse 8 of chapter 6, thorns and thistles, worthless, cursed, being burned up. The vengeance of the wrath of Almighty God. My suggestion then is that what we have here is a duplication, an ongoing repetition of the pattern of sojourn. Sojourn as it was under Moses in the former era, in the wilderness of Sinai. Sojourner, sojourn in the latter age, under the great high priest, Jesus Christ. And in both instances, we have the uh, relationship between the external and the internal. The internal community which has been drawn in to the heavenly tabernacle by the new and living way that Christ himself has inaugurated. But those who sin willfully after knowing the truth and trample underfoot the blood of the Son of God. Remember, he is writing to a community of professing Christians here. And he's very much aware of the difficulties in this community because of the apostasy which is broken out in it. He's alluded to it in chapter 6. He's described it in other ways. He's particularly drawn a relationship to Psalm 95 and its recounting of the redemptive historical apostasy of the wilderness generation, and he is bringing that to bear upon his own audience. And so he repeats the pattern here in chapter 10 before he moves on to his glorious 11th chapter. The contrast of the pilgrims of the New Age with open access to a new and living way in Christ, with the pilgrims of the former age who were barred from that access, reminds the readers of this letter that the danger of apostasy is real. It is real even in this new and better era. And the apparent sojourners pretending to be pilgrims who willfully sin against the truth and trample under their feet the Son of God 
insulting the spirit of grace, may expect no less fury from the God of righteous vengeance, for falling into his hands is a fearful and terrifying thing indeed. You want to risk apostasy from the Christian faith? I pity you. I pity you with sincere pity. Do not dare God. Do not do it. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Don't roll your dice. Don't roll your dice and bet that it's all a myth. Just remember the bleaching bones in the wilderness. That's no myth. No myth. And this epistle is warning the Christian community against pretending, hanging on to the coattails and being an external member of the community with no internal transformation. Playing the game, being a mime as a Christian, just imitating the act. but not possessing the heart. Carrying about in the body of your death a heart of stone, cold as adamant, as unbreakable as a diamond, hardened against every encouragement and wooing invitation of Christ to crucify yourself. And die to your own ego and your own lusts that you may have life. You see, the danger of apostasy is very real in this community to which he is writing. And that's the reason he reprises this motif of the contrast between the former era and the latter era. And he does it over and over again. It's not just priesthood. It's just not tabernacle. It's just not covenant. It is the whole paradigm of a pilgrim sojourn. And he uses it in order to get to the heart and attention of this community of professing believers that is in danger of walking down that same dead-end pilgrim way of the former era. Well, in verse 26, this willful sinning is a lifestyle. This willful sinning is a lifestyle. I want you to notice that present participle. Ongoing willful sinning. Ongoing willful sinning. This is habitual. Habitual, meaning it is a habit. Habitual and high-handed rebellion against the Lord God. It is an ongoing and persistent arrogance and hard-heartedness against the blood of the everlasting covenant which has been shed by the Son of God. 
This is not a temporary slip into temptation or stumbling in one's Christian walk, which is followed by the Psalm 51 cry against thee and thee only have I sinned. None of these apostates say against thee and thee only have I sinned. Sin doesn't bother them a bit. They're just like Pharaoh with every plague. And he hardens his heart and he hardens his heart and he hardens his heart and it gets harder and harder and harder. Not because God's pouring cement into it, but because he won't soften it. And so leaving it to itself, it simply becomes more adamantine as it goes. Such a lifestyle, in verse 27, such a persistent and habitual lifestyle may expect nothing else but the fiery fury of God's wrath. He will consume the adversaries. He will consume those who willfully sin against the knowledge of the truth. And much greater than the sin of Moses, verse 29, is the sin of the gospel era. The Son of God is himself greater than Moses. How much more shall the punishment be of those who trample underfoot the Son of God? Now notice, this is not an innocuous momentary rejection of Christ. This is contempt. This is contempt. Regarding the second person of the Godhead of being worthy of being trampled to the ground. Regarding the second person of the Godhead of being worthy of being trampled under your feet into the ground. They demean his blood as they demean his person. They stamp upon his blood in contempt and defiance. This is the highest degree of profanity. It is an insult to the Savior of the world. And God will revenge it. He will say as the father of his dear son, How dare you demean my son's precious blood? Precious in my sight to all eternity. How dare you trample under your feet the dignity of my only begotten. How dare you treat my son with contempt. I will repay you contempt for contempt. I will demean you lower than the pit of hell. Do you understand what you take on when you take my son on? And you thought you were playing with a sugar daddy in the sky, the man upstairs in his rocking chair. You domesticated him to your agenda or to your horizon. And you thought that you had God in your pocket. And you had no idea of who the God of Scripture was. Because, of course, you were your own God. Isn't that what postmodernism is all about? We are our own gods. 
Isn't that what Occupy Wall Street is all about? We are gods. Isn't that what the rebellious nature and character of this generation is? Even all the way up to the highest parts of political power in this country, we are gods. You will do what we decree, and we don't even have to go to Congress to get permission to tell you what we decree. Because we are gods. This arrogance will come with a price. Sooner or later, God will say, vengeance is mine, I will repay. It is just as true in the arena of the spiritual as it is in the arena of the physical. You defy the omnipotent arms to steal a line from John Milton and he will respond. Let us be confident in our assurance that it does not belong to our citizenship in the United States of America, praise God. But it belongs to the citizenship of the kingdom of heaven. And in that, we rest secure. And we plead and pray with all men and women to repent and to come to Christ. And yet, we realize that more and more we face a generation whose heart is like adamant. Nothing phases them except their own inconvenience. Nothing bothers them except to deny them their pleasure or what they want. They don't even understand what the word sin means. You can't even define it for them. It doesn't register in their vocabulary. Because wrong is right for them. And they define right. This is a new spirit that we have not encountered. And that is what is so insidious about it. We are in an era and living in a generation which has now cut itself loose virtually entirely from anything that restrains it save its own self-indulgence. I am not a prophet, but I read the history books. No, it's not a repeat of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire yet. Yet. But when you begin bankrupting future generations and pretending that that is ethical, 
you've crossed over a line. You've crossed over a line. Is there any going back after you cross the line? That, of course, is a question that remains to be answered. But as the question becomes out of the direct derivation of the paradigm that is before us, apostasy comes upon communities, even communities that profess to be Christian. Apostasy comes to nations, even nations that claim to be Christian. Apostasy comes because, to steal the words of the old rock and roll song, yes, I am the great pretender. Take your break and we'll finish the chapter and say a few other things before we conclude. All right, now, uh, looking then at the last unit of this section, which is bound by the word endured and endurance. Verse 32 contains the word endured and verse 36, the word endurance. The question is, what was the duress under which this Christian community existed? Notice that he uses the past tense, Time passed, they had endured. Then he moves to the present tense. They must continue to show endurance. And in between that bracket, we are told something of what this Christian community did endure. And what's the first thing that you would say they endured? Art, what would you say? Insult and persecution. Persecution is a generic term here. What kind of persecution? Back to you, Art. Let's take your word insult. What kind of persecution is that? Is that persecution? I would say so. Yes, but what kind of persecution? Um, Ridicule. Ridicule. Uh, what, What are we talking about then? Verbal. Verbal persecution. Very good. This public ridicule. Or public reproach is a verbal abuse. That is, these Christians are being abused for being Christians publicly. They're being called names. They're being reproached. They're being ridiculed. They're being belittled. Now he goes on to say, in verse 33, tribulation. Now, once again, this is a public term, public tribulation. What public tribulation are they enduring or had they endured? Anyone? So what verse is that, Jim? That was verse 33. So the issue now is to 
this is public tribulation. It had public ridicule. Now we have public tribulation. Ben? Well, I don't know specifically, but... Take a look at the passage. Verse 34. Imprisonment. Imprisonment, yes. Some of them had been jailed. What else had happened? Some of them had had their property confiscated. And others were identifying with those who had so suffered, becoming sharers, verse 33, with those who were so treated. So there's an identification in this community with those who have been treated with public ridicule and those who have been treated with public suffering or tribulation, even imprisonment. All right, so the persecution here is significant. It is verbal and it is physical. Namely, they've been imprisoned and goods, property, belongings have been seized. But what hasn't happened? How do you know? That is correct. How do you know? Turn over to chapter 12, verse 4. You're not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Very good. Maureen's quoting the passage. You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. All right, so they have been persecuted verbally in public. They've been persecuted physically in public. Namely, they've been thrown in jail. They've had their property confiscated and taken from them. But they have not been killed. So the persecution hasn't gotten to the point of execution. Which means what about the date of this letter? Prior to 64 AD. It is prior to 64 AD. What is in 64 AD, Robert? Very good. That's when Nero burned Rome and then uh, blamed it on the Christians. Very good. 64 AD is the fire that Nero sets in Rome. Well, we pro- he probably said it. Uh, <clears throat> 95% sure that he said it. And blamed it on the Christians and then began to crucify the Christians Uh, along the roadways of Rome and executed uh, many of them. That means that this epistle precedes 64 AD. It precedes the shedding of blood of Roman Christians. Why do we say Roman Christians? Because of verse 24 of chapter 13 at the end of the letter. Those in Italy greet you. Italy has a component part in this letter's origin or destination. Consequently, there is, shall we say, a Roman connection here. We can't say uh, what it is in complete detail, but it is there in the background. And because they had not uh, suffered to the shedding of blood, then we place this before 64 AD. Why is the date important? We are within 30 years of the death and resurrection of Christ. 30 years. 
Do you realize what Greek scholars would do to have a manuscript of Homer's Iliad or Odyssey within 30 years? The earliest manuscript they have is hundreds of years after 1000 B.C. when it alleged to have been written. They would drool. It would be like the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls all over again. Thirty years within the death of Christ, we have this marvelous epistle. Testifying in the second chapter, the second generation of Christians, namely a man who knew those that knew the Lord. Further, further back towards the authentic eyewitnesses of the proclamation of the life, death, resurrection of the Son of God. It's extremely important to us to understand that this letter is very close and is part of the apostolic era. No, no second century date for this. No, uh, no uh, redaction which goes into the later ages of Christianity. This is at the doorstep of the apostolic era. All right, verse 35. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. What is this great reward? It is the better possession of verse 34. It is the abiding possession of verse 34. It is that which was promised in verse 36. And notice the contrast. The better possession, because they have been dispossessed dispossessed of their property and their freedom. Some of them thrown in jail, others losing their goods. But there is a better possession. There is a possession which abides and remains. There is an eschatological possession. Well, what is this better possession? Where do you get that? In this letter. Chapter what? No. Scott? 1222. 1222. Lisa said heaven, and she's right, but let's see from the passage, from the epistle, where that is specifically uh, indicated. You have not come. You have come to Mount Sinai. To Mount Zion, rather, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. They're still on the earth. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. It's the same as we outlined in this pattern of definitive sanctification. It's this now, not yet paradigm. You now have come. To what you will not yet possess eternally. You now have it. You have come there already. Even though you are not yet there consummately, perfectly. You live in that drama. You live in that realization. 
You live there because Christ has taken you there. You live where he is now. Is he seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven? Is he seated in the heavenly Jerusalem? Then now you have come because you're in him. You belong to him. He has taken you with him. He's the pilgrim. He's the pioneer. He's taken you on the journey home with him. That's where your life is hidden with Christ in God. And that's where you live out of. That's where your behavior originates. That's how you act. That is the call for you to put your mind on things above. In the heavenly Jerusalem, which is your possession, an abiding possession. That word abiding, you see, it abides. It doesn't stop. You can't take it away. It remains. It's an eschatological reality. Can't be subtracted from you. Because he has promised. And he can't deny himself. All right, verse 39. <clears throat> this phrase, <clears throat> those who shrink back to destruction. Who's he referring to here? The apostates in the community. Why does he use this image? They shrink back to destruction. Well, because in the wilderness, the actual wilderness, they shrink back from going into the promised land. That's exactly right. This is a wilderness motif once again. This is a sojourn motif. That wilderness generation. <laughs> who shrank back from the promise to go into the land and with an evil heart of unbelief brought upon themselves destruction in the desert. But notice that other phrase in that verse. But those who had the faith to the preserving of the soul. Now your marginal note in the New American Standard says possessing the soul. Preserving the soul is easy to gather, isn't it? But let's take a look at this Greek word possess, where it occurs in the rest of the New Testament. Let's begin with Ephesians chapter chapter 1. Now, I know you don't know the Greek, so we'll take a look at the English word. But let's start. It is the same Greek word. Take my word for it. Ephesians 1, 14. In him you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession. Translation there is God's possession. You are God's possession. First Thessalonians 5, 9. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. God has not destined us for wrath, but for possessing salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word there is possessing salvation. It's translated obtaining in the New American Standard. They should have been consistent with themselves and translated it possessing. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 
2 Thessalonians 2.14. And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain. The word is possess the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Possessing the glory. And finally, 1 Peter 2.9. First Peter 2 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. You belong to God himself. All right. So what is the better translation of this word in Hebrews 10 39? It is the marginal reading possession. Those who have the faith to the possession of the soul, an eschatological possession of the soul. What does the soul possess eschatologically? Redemption, Ephesians 1.14. Salvation, 1 Thessalonians 5.9. Glory, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. God himself, 1 Peter 2.9. The better translation here is the marginal reading. The soul gains an eschatological possession, which is heaven. An entrance into that heavenly tabernacle by the new and living way has been opened by the blood of Christ. An abiding or permanent once and for all remission of sin, a definitive sanctification in the sanctification of Christ Jesus, the Son of God, our Lord. Welcome home. But we notice the hook pattern at the end of chapter 10 and the beginning of chapter 11. What is the hook pattern at the end of 10 and the beginning of 11? Ben, do you remember? It is the word faith. The word faith concatenates the end of 10 with the beginning of 11. This is the pattern of our writer to connect his seamless epistolary narrative by hooking together like crocheted uh, uh, pattern. Les mots crochet in French, crocheted words by hooking the beginning and ending of his chapters sequentially. So, we're going to talk about faith. And in evangelical circles, where do we commonly speak of faith in Protestantism? And all you Protestants immediately say, <laughs> we say faith alone. Faith alone? What was the question? When we discuss faith in Protestant circles, we say what? What is your faith? Love. Trust. Mm. I think we're all going to have to go back to 1517. Justification by faith alone. Don't forget the adverb. All right. So, speaking of faith on the brink of celebrating the Protestant Reformation, we think of justification by faith alone. Is faith the cause of justification? Mary Lou, is faith the cause of justification? Are you justified because of faith? No. No. Mary Lou? No, I said somebody else did too. (laughs) Is faith the cause of your justification? 
Is faith alone the cause of your justification? No? Okay, why not? Let's think about that. What is a cause? A cause is the reason for which something exists. Is your faith the reason for which your justification exists? Because the faith is not true. I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to Mary Lou. You don't love him anymore. (laughs) She wants some help. Terry, you're her helpmate. He's whispering in my ear, and I don't listen. (laughs) What did you say? It's Christ. Ah, the cause is not faith. The cause is Christ. Okay, very good. Why could the cause not be faith, Art? If it were, let's say for the sake of discussion, it were faith. That sounds like uh, works. That sounds like work. Is faith your work? Uh, is the one that you, I'm not asking that. I said, is it your work? No. Are you believing? Are you the one that's believing? Or is that a little piece of God in you believing? Is that your act of faith? Is faith your act? I didn't ask where it came from. I'm just asking it. Is it your act? Yes. yes. It is your act. Is it your work? Yes, it is your work. So if we said that faith was the cause of justification, we'd be saying that I am saved by my work of faith, right? Yes. All right. Now, yes, faith is a gift of God. You wouldn't have faith if God didn't give it. But now we're not talking about that. We're talking about when you do it. All right. This is very precise theology. No sloppy theology here. All right. Now. What is the cause of justification? And Terry answered it superbly. The cause or the reason for our justification is Christ. So we would say not, not because of faith. Okay? Not because of faith. But because of Christ. And yet... What was the phrase that we repeated as Protestants? As Protestants, every Halloween we talk about... Reformation. No, no. At every, at every Reformation we think about what? And faith? Justification. Justification. By faith. You said by faith. By faith alone. You didn't say because of faith. By faith. Dave, what's the difference between by and because? You. You're the only Dave here. Well, the Reformers would say we're saved by grace through faith. Faith is the instrument of our salvation. So you're saying faith or, or by suggests an instrument? Can you say it another way, anyone? 
Yeah. Not they, are. How about a conduit? That's what I was going to say. Conduit. A conduit. By means conduit. I like that. Anybody else? Any other word? No, no, not you. You had your chance. <laughs> Christine, you got a word you want to offer? I'm not understanding. Okay. Lisa, any, another word? Ben? Yeah, but we're talking about by faith. What does by faith mean? What, is, what does the word by mean when we're talking about by faith? By is an instrument. Faith is an instrument. Okay, faith is a conduit. Faith is a... Don't like that one. Pipeline. Pipeline. We'll, we'll say that that goes with conduit. Okay. Means. It is a means. Okay, so then we say justification is by faith. We mean that faith is an instrument by which justification is received. It's a means by which justification is received, and I like this word conduit or pipeline. All right, let's take the pipeline in your house, the water pipeline in your house. It's a conduit. It's a means of bringing water from the main water line to your mouth. I'm going to be very personal about this. It's going to get right into your mouth. Okay? Now, is the pipe the cause of what quenches your thirst? Is the pipe, does the pipe produce what quenches your thirst? Does the pipe contribute to what quenches your thirst? And here we are thinking of an environmentally inert pipe. No lead in this pipe. Does the pipe contribute to what, to what quenches your thirst? No, it's inert. It contributes nothing. It is the water which is the cause of your thirst being quenched, not the pipe. It is the water which is the product outside the pipe which which quenches your thirst. It is the water which contributes everything to quenching your thirst, not the pipe. The pipe receives the water. The pipe conducts the water. The pipe transmits the water to your mouth. All right. So, faith is not the cause of justification. Not Faith does not produce justification. Faith does not contribute to justification. Because the cause of justification is Christ. The, the, who produces justification? Christ. Who contributes everything to justification? Christ. Christ. Faith receives Christ. Faith conducts Christ. Faith transmits Christ to your heart and soul. Faith is like the pipeline. All right. So like the water pipe, faith is an instrument. It is the means it is not the cause. It is not the originator. It is not a contributor. It does not produce justification. This word, by faith, which is used consistently in the New Testament, is never, ever altered to because of faith. Never. 
and that for the reason that we have just suggested. Well then, what is being conducted or transmitted by faith? What's being conducted? What's coming through the pipeline? Justification, right? Justification coming through the pipeline. Well, in regard to Christ, what is necessary for justification? Faith is necessary? Not if faith, not if Christ is the justifier. Faith is only receiving it. So what is necessary to justification? Well, what's the opposite of justification? Condemnation. How do you know that? Text? Mm, not really in the same context. I'm thinking of justification and condemnation in the very same context. Passage? Romans 5. Romans 5 with a contrast between condemnation and justification. All right, so what does it mean to be condemned? You get sentenced, don't you? What's the sentence you get? Death. What sentence is pronounced upon you if you're condemned? You stand in front of the judge. What sentence is he pronounced? What does, it, what does the jury pronounce? Guilty. The sentence is guilty. Well, then, if I'm going to be justified, I've got to get pronounced not guilty. Correct? And if I'm pronounced guilty, then I'm going to have to pay a penalty. Correct? So this language of guilty, not guilty, paying a penalty, where do you imagine you'd be standing if you heard this language? In a courtroom. With a judge on the bench. And the accused at the bar. And the evidence presented. And the sentence pronounced by the judge. And the guilty sentence means that a penalty must be paid. If you pay it, if you pay it, what sentence do you get? If you pay the penalty, you're relieved of it. Now what sentence do you get? Not guilty. So, if I can pay the penalty, then I could be pronounced not guilty. But in this courtroom, there's another way for the penalty to be paid. Because I can't pay the penalty. Why can't I pay the penalty? Because the penalty is eternal. And the only way I'll pay an eternal penalty is by eternally being penalized. Correct? So back to another way in this court. I can't pay it. Boy, it'd be great if somebody could pay it for me. If somebody would say, I'll pay the penalty. 
And then because they paid the penalty, then I could be declared not guilty. In the eyes of the court, in the eyes of justice, not guilty of the penalty, no penalty assessed, debt paid, payment in full, penalty remitted. Does this constitute you righteous? The penalty has been paid. Does this constitute you righteous? Why not? Why aren't you righteous when your debt's paid? It has to be imputed to us because the balance is just zero. There's no positive righteousness. Because you've still got the unrighteousness on your record, don't you? You see, the guilt's been paid, but the unrighteousness is still there before you paid the guilt. The incriminating crime is still there. It's still on your record. Your, your, your rap sheet shows that you were once guilty of a crime, which means that you were unrighteous. You fell short of the bar of righteousness by the fact that you committed a crime. So you can be justified from the penalty of the guilt because the penalty has been paid for you. But how to be constituted righteous that is, as rights, as righteous as if you never were a criminal. How to be regarded as perfectly righteous, past, present, and future, before the judge. How? Only if Christ pays the price by dying for us on the cross. That takes care of the penalty. Penalties paid. Now I'm dealing with the fact that I've still got unrighteousness on my record. A life of, a life of substitution by which he obtains a righteousness which he, he takes away. He takes our unrighteousness and he gives us his righteousness. If I had a righteousness to cover my unrighteousness, what kind of righteousness? What kind of righteousness? What kind of righteousness? What kind of righteousness? If I had the righteousness of God. Yeah, if I had the righteousness which is of the righteousness of God, then that would surely cover my unrighteousness all the way back to all eternity past, wouldn't it? Well, do I have it? No, I do not have it. Is it in me? No, it's not in me because I've already fallen short of it and I've got it on my record. I've got criminal unrighteousness on my rap sheet. It's still there. It's, even though the penalty's been paid, the unrighteousness stands. Well, then I can work for it. From now on, I'll be perfectly righteous. Well, we have been made to the righteousness of God in Christ. I'll work for the righteousness from here on in and then that will make me righteous. Well, that doesn't do any good for what I already did, right? The crime that I already committed in unrighteousness, it doesn't cover. I mean, I can go from here on with perfect righteousness. 
until I die. But it's not going to cover that one act of unrighteousness back there in the past, is it? So you see, I'm in desperate need of some righteousness to clear the record. Good works won't do it. Penance won't do it. I need a righteousness like God's righteousness. And that righteousness is not in me. It is in Christ. Well, in what aspect of Christ's career do I find this righteousness? No, that takes care of the penalty. In what aspect of his career do I have this righteousness which I need? Lisa? In Christ's perfect obedience? In his life, in his perfectly righteous life. So, he gives his perfectly righteous life to me. He imputes it to me. He credits it to me. So now I'm back to this courtroom scene again. Here I've got the penalty remedied by another who paid the penalty in my place. And I have the deficit of my unrighteousness remedied by another who credits his righteousness to cover my unrighteousness. So when I look at this question of justification by faith alone, I see that I need not only the forgiveness of my penalty, but I also need the positive imputation of the righteousness of God, the righteousness of a righteous life. I need the active imputation of the righteousness of the active obedience of Christ. I need his life for my unrighteous life. I need his righteous life for my unrighteous life. I need his penalty-paying death for my penalty-deserving life. I need two things. I need his life, and I need his death, and I need it all capstone vindicated and declared, tied up in a package. I need his resurrection. In other words, I need the history of what Jesus did in time and space. My justification will not exist without the full history of what Jesus did. You cannot leave out any part of what Jesus did and say that you will stand justified before Almighty God. You cannot say, I don't need the active obedience of the righteousness of Christ for my justification. I only need the death of Christ on the cross to remit my penalty for my justification. All I need is the blood of Jesus for my justification. You can't say that because then you divide Jesus. Do you understand that the whole business of justification includes the whole Jesus, the whole life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what the New Testament is underscoring over and over and over again. 
So you can't come out of your modern understanding of the doctrine of justification or your so-called smart aleck sophistication and say, no, we don't need the active obedience of the righteousness of Christ. All we need is the death of Christ on the cross. Because now you're saying you don't need a positive, righteous life applied to your negative, unrighteous life in order to balance the ledger and to acquit you as righteous in the eyes of God according to the perfect standard of righteousness in the law. You don't have that pattern of obedience, but you're not going to stand acceptable to him without it. And if you don't have some place to go get it, then you're not going to be justified. And that's the reason there's an incarnate righteous life for your unrighteous life. You desperately need the actively righteous life of Jesus for your justification. Without it, you're not going to be justified. Just as much as you need the passive substitution and death of Christ for your justification to take your penalty, your death penalty, your hell penalty away from you. And then grace upon grace, he was raised for our justification, Romans 4.25. You need the resurrection to confirm and to corroborate the fact that his righteous life is justifying righteousness and his bloody death is justifying atonement. And therefore, by his resurrection, he is justified. And you in him. You leave out any part of the career of Jesus of Nazareth with respect to your justification, and you gut the doctrine of justification, which is central to the Apostle Paul's thinking. Because you need Jesus' life for your justification. And you need Jesus' death for your justification. And you need Jesus' resurrection for your justification. And now you see your doctrine of justification by faith has just been enriched and expanded with a wealth of treasure for your faithful and believing reliance and trust. You trust Jesus in his life, don't you? Because it's a justifying life. And you trust Jesus in his death, don't you? Because it's a penalty-remitting death. It's a hell-remitting death. And you trust Jesus in his resurrection, don't you? Because that vindicates him as the righteous Savior. The history of redemption enriches your doctrine of justification by faith alone because now it puts flesh on it. It puts the flesh of the life of Jesus. It puts the bloody flesh of the death of Jesus. 
and it puts the resurrection glorified flesh of Jesus upon your doctrine of justification. It's not an abstraction. It's not a mere doctrine. It is not a catechetical right and wrong answer. This is now flesh and blood stuff, just like you are flesh and blood. Because that's what he did. And he did it so that he would wear your flesh and take your blood and raise your body so that your history would be merged into his story. And faith conducts all of that to your soul. Faith transmits all of that to you. It adds nothing whatsoever to it. It's the pipeline, it's the conduit to bring the life of Christ to your soul, the death of Christ to your soul, the resurrection of Christ to your soul, and justification by Christ's life, death, and resurrection to your pitiful and miserable soul. Now you can stand on your feet with Martin Luther and say, I'll stand on Christ and his life death, and resurrection. No, Luther didn't say exactly that. But Gerhardus Voss did. And so did Hermann Ritterboss. And it's all the more reason that you read them and understand them because they understand Paul. That's why. They understand the mind of Paul. Which is understanding the mind of God. Surely, surely you'd want to read somebody's mind that understands the mind of God. All right, any questions? My final statement here is that Hebrews 11 is not talking about faith in this way. Hebrews 11 is not talking about the forensic aspect of faith, the forensic, that is the courtroom aspect of faith. That's not what Hebrews 11 is talking about. And if if you think that I am spouting heresy, then come back in two weeks. (laughs) And I will defend that statement from the book. Dave, you had a question. Isn't the act of Christ and the covenant of works essentially synonymous. The act of obedience of Christ and the covenant of works is synonymous. What do you mean by that? Well, did Christ? I mean, you hold the covenant of works, right? Let's do the question. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, isn't didn't Christ fulfill the covenant of works? Is that way too long a topic? Uh, yes. Okay. I mean, if, I mean, Christ fulfilled the moral law, right? Yes. So isn't the moral law sort of covenant works that we were originally under? Yes. Nothing I said should imply that he did not. So basically... <clears throat> but I'm not talking about the work of justification in that aspect. Okay? I'm talking about justification in a forensic aspect 
as I think Paul is, particularly in Romans 5. I guess I'm referring to those who deny the covenant of works. How can they deny the covenant of works and still have the act of obedience to Christ? Um, well, you're, you're, you're talking about obscure Dutch theologians, so I leave them to obscurity. Any other questions or comments? All right, you have a freebie next week for Thursday.